Reflections on Homer's Iliad by Gil Bailey Produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 5 Once again, we're going to use the Iliad to see not only what our spiritual and cultural dilemma is, but something of the secret peculiarity of spiritual and cultural life always and everywhere. The Iliad is a story about, among other things, a cultural breakdown within the Greek or Argive camp. It's a rendition of the chief fear in societies less deluded about civility and social permanence than ours tends to be, the chief fear being that there might be an outbreak of a cultural solvent which disintegrates the social order and its orienting distinctions and results finally in violence. In our text, both the Argive camp and the Trojan citadel show signs of this cultural collapse. In both, there is a breakdown of the efficacy of blood sacrifice, of which war itself is a symptom. When the first symptoms of this cultural disease appear, and they are Achilles' wrath and his rejection of the staff of Agamemnon and his, and his departure from the battle against the Trojans, when these first symptoms appear, something fateful and all but invisible begins to happen to the social organism. An analogy might be to say that, depending on how you want to be anthropological about this, to say that nature or God, however you have it, uh, doesn't trust us to be able to accomplish, for instance, the procreational particulars, impregnation, childbirth, nurturing, etc., by relying on common sense or good intentions. So, at such biologically important times, our nervous systems and imaginations are flooded with hormones and archetypal impulses, respectively. Still, within a certain spectrum, choices are possible. Likewise, the symptoms of cultural disintegration set in motion what I'm going to call cultural resuscitation rituals, which are profoundly instinctive. Another analogy might be what happens to the beehive when the queen bee dies. Very strange things happen, which cannot be analyzed very well. That is to say, suddenly the bees that were doing one thing start doing something else. Uh, and there's a, a, a great instinctive churning around of the, of, of the system until the new queen is discovered and put in place. Ernest Becker, in his works on cultural confusion, lamented the fact that, ironically, it is often the leaders in a society who have, as he put it, their heads most fully into the cloud of cultural delusion. But actually, that is as expected. Those who play a key role in the resuscitation rituals, its priesthood, you might say, must submit more fully to its mythos than others. Even in democracies, when, quote unquote, when symptoms of cultural dissolution multiply, as we've seen in the West in recent years, 
those least immune to the culture-sponsoring delusions become politically popular. And this is for a reason. The priesthood must be, as Becker said, have their heads full into the cloud of cultural illusion. Because both they and we know in some deeply instinctive way which side our cultural bread is buttered on. And we know how important it is to maintain some kind of cultural superstructure. So the ritual of cultural resuscitation begins without any of those actually participating in the ritual become, becoming fully conscious of what they're doing. At the conclusion of the process, an objective but anthropologically naive observer will be tempted to suspect that the events have been conspiratorial. So seemingly choreographed are the various elements of the ritual. That's why, after the assassinations of John Kennedy and Martin Luther King, the conspiracy theorists had a heyday, and they were both right and wrong. The really shocking thing is that those who play key roles in the cultural resuscitation rituals are themselves caught up in a psychosocial gestalt in which the reasoned choices that they are making are by no means the dominant determining factor. Something else has taken hold of the social system. As with the procreation analogy, the spectrum within which individual choices can be made varies in relation to the importance to the overall ritual of the act in question. For instance, one has more latitude, using the procreational analogy, one has much more latitude in choosing a mate than in deciding what to do during the last stages of labor. In this part of the Iliad, as we approach the most potentially scandalous of the ritual's episodes, the textual allusions are to the gods covering the scene with darkness and to the onset of a profoundly instinctual set of responses. When it has run its course, Homer's boundless compassion on all the befuddled participants serves as a sort of Homeric version of forgive them for they know not what they do. So as I said, fear in the primordial society is the fear of the violence that follows like clockwork from the dissolution of the cultural distinctions that structure and define social life. The choice that seems available in a primordial society is not a choice between violence and nonviolence. That simply has not arisen. Whether it has actually arisen in our day is another question, but it certainly has not arisen in a primordial society. The choice is between, and now I'm going to use two terms from René Girard's work, and I owe a great debt to René Girard for much of what I want to talk about today, not just these terms, and I'll quote from him a little bit. But he uses two very important terms, and I want to use them here in a very slightly different way perhaps than he used them, but not markedly. The terms are reciprocal violence and unanimous violence. So the choice is not between violence and nonviolence in a primordial society. It is between reciprocal violence, that is to say violence that has broken out within the tribe, in which the tribal members themselves are at odds with one another, 
or, on the other hand, the alternative to that being unanimous violence, that is to say, a violence in which all agree on the object of the violence, on the, on the, the victim of the violence, on the enemy. What a primordial society is concerned with at these, the symptom of a cultural dissolution is the fact that reciprocal violence, even if latent, now notice the reciprocal violence in the Iliad begins in book one, is repressed or sublimated. Athena grabs Achilles by the hair and keeps him from killing Agamemnon. Still in all, and that's why we have a story instead of just an immediate collapse of things, still in all, that latent violence is there, and that's what, at a deeper level, the poem is all about. That as a symptom of the, the most salient symptom of the breakdown of cultural order. So a latent reciprocal violence. In the Iliad, as in any primordial society, the question is, the focus is on those rituals that will convert reciprocal violence back into a culturally tolerable violence, that is to say, unanimous violence. No, no alternative in the primordial situation other than those two. The Iliad is a story of the various attempts to bring about the conversion of reciprocal violence, although it's still only latent, into unanimous violence. So the fear is so strong, the fear of this reciprocal violence is so strong that the cultic devices for preventing the outbreak of intra-tribal violence are triggered by the earliest symptoms which is to say these cult rituals are not primarily curative rituals. The uh, sponsoring cultures are too pessimistic about the possibility of curing a full outbreak of intra-tribal violence to, rely, to think that their rituals can do that. Their hope is that they can put these rituals in place at the earliest possible signs of that reciprocal violence. You see, it hasn't broken out within the Greek camp. Time and again, attempts are made to, to bring that, to re reconcile that latent reciprocal violence, convert it into unanimous violence, directed outward, and time and again they failed. But now we're, on, we're, we're at the point where one's going to work. But notice that these rituals are considered only preventative. They are not strong enough in and of themselves to cure it once it fully breaks out. So there's a great urgency that these rituals get in place and effective before it actually breaks out. So in the Argive camp, the symptom of the outbreak of this reciprocal violence, even though it's still latent, is the wrath of Achilles or the will to revenge. Achilles has turned unanimous violence of the Greek campaign against Troy into the still sublimated reciprocal violence of the hostility between the two claimants to preeminence in the Greek camp, himself and Agamemnon. The whole social body begins to respond to this alarming symptom in the way that a physical body would respond to an infection or a fever. That is to say, in some mysterious, complex, unconscious, instinctive way. I said I would quote from René Girard. Here's the first quote I want to use with a little caveat. That is to say, I'm, as you know, I'm unscrupulous with these things. I, 
I, uh, I want to quote it and then massage it a little bit. He says, ritual sacrifice is founded on a double substitution. The first, which passes unperceived, is the substitution of one mem member of the community for all, brought about by the operation of a surrogate victim. The surrogate victim in the Iliad might be seen to be Patroclus. The second is superimposed on the first. It is the substitution of a victim belonging to a predetermined sacrificial category for the original victim. The surrogate victim comes from inside the community, and the ritual victim must come from outside. The ritual victim will be Hector. The ritual victim comes from the outside. Otherwise, said Gerard, the community might find it difficult to unite against it. Now, there's a variation here on what he's talking about, and I want to pursue it a little bit. The reason the surrogate victim can't be sacrificed, the surrogate victim might have cousins in the tribe, to, to, put a, to, to make the point. The sacrifice of the surrogate victim, that is to say a tribal member, might bring about the very thing it's trying to the ritual sacrifice it's trying to prevent, namely actual, frank, open, reciprocal violence. And that's why the surrogate, often the surrogate victim is king in a classic mythological motif. The surrogate victim can't be sacrificed. The surrogate victim in our story is sacrificed, but what prevents that from becoming what it might otherwise become is that the executioner is the, is the one who's going to be the ritual victim. That is to say, the executioner is the enemy. We have, we be, you know, when you get into this, you begin to talk about these strange sort of entities like the zeitgeist or, in the New Testament terms, powers and principalities. You know, something has gotten into the system and it looks like there's a choreographer. But the choreographer is an archetypal one. And we have a perfect text for the exploration of that dynamic in, in this part of the Iliad. The device for shifting the sacrificial weight from the source of the disease to the surrogate victim and then finally to the ritual victim is the armor of Achilles. Achilles is the personification of the disease. This is a poem about the wrath of Achilles, which doesn't even become visible on the cultural radar screen until it becomes part of the reciprocal violence. Nobody complains about the wrath of Achilles as long as he is slaughtering Trojans. It becomes a cultural dilemma when it comes inside the camp, and then it becomes a problem. That's the disease. The wrath of Achilles, asterisk, facing inside the tribe. That's the problem. The symbol of that problem is the armor of Achilles. That is the disease-carrying coordinate. What do they call it in contagious disease? Since they have a word for the vector. That's the vector of the disease, is the, is the armor of Achilles. His arrogance, his wrath, 
his rage. The Argives are, are in a catch-22. They, it is the wrath of Achilles that is going to destroy their culture. But they can't do away with it altogether because their only hope for winning the war is to redirect the wrath of Achilles towards the Trojans. He is their, he is their chief military machine. They can't do away with him altogether. This is the irony that comes into play here. One of the ancient rituals for converting reciprocal violence into unanimous violence in the Greek cultural setting is a thing called the pharmakos. The pharmakos. This is the pharmacy. This is where you go to get the medicine if you have a disease. The pharmakos, the word, the Greek word pharmakos, is something referring to, it's something referring to a what Gerard calls a, a predetermined category of potential victims. The pharmacos, and even in 5th century Greece, when things were quite highly evolved, there remained this tradition in Athens. People differ over whether they think it was still enacted in actual bloodletting or whether it was more ceremonial and symbolic and so on. But certainly in the earlier stages of it, it was... it. it resulted in bloodletting, and very possibly even in later stages it resulted in bloodletting. And here's how it worked, with some uh, concessions here to brevity. A group of marginal potential pharmacos uh, would be housed at the expense of the society, and these would be marked people, and I'll get into a second how they might be marked. And when a symptom of the collapse of the cultural order would appear, and the symptom might be the outbreak of hostility, it might be a plague, it might be a drought, it might be uh, any kind of cultural confusion, it might be a murder that's no one knows, you know, that, that's right on the verge of causing, you know, the McCoys and the Hatfields to have it out. Something like that is in the air. The pharmacos would be brought out. And the pharmacos would be then paraded through the community, particularly through those areas of the community where the disease is located, and the pharmacos would then, in a manner of speaking, begin to absorb onto himself all of this confusion and latent violence. And the parade would ritualistically entwine itself through the community until this absorption process had become complete. And then in a more elaborate and formal ritual, the pharmacos would be eliminated, either slaughtered or run out of town, or in a more uh, symbolic way, whipped or in some symbolic sense. The pharmacos. The word pharmacos means poison and also the cure for poison. It's the hair of the dog that bit you. The pharmacos, if too much, if the dosage is too high, it's poisonous. The pharmacos was marked in some way. Now the mark could be, it, the mark was often a flaw. Could be a could be a physical flaw. Remember Oedipus. Oedipus means swollen foot. Oedipus was a limper. As a child, as a baby, his father exposed him on a hill. And he comes back after all the rest of that time to kill his father, sleep with his mother, become the embodiment of all of the cultural disease, and then become the pharmacos. 
and finally even in Oedipus at Colonus become the pharmacological remedy. You see? Okay, the pharmacos is marked. It can be a physical mark. It can be a moral mark. It could be a criminal. It could be a someone psychologically marked, a marginal character in that sense, a congenital mark, a social mark. In book 23, which we're not going to talk about today, but I want to bring it in today, in book 23 of the Iliad, we find out something very interesting about Patroclus, and, our, and Patroclus is, who, is the one we're following now, you see. In book 23, Patroclus' ghost speaks to Achilles. He says something about his own childhood, which we haven't heard anything about until then. And we find that he fits what Gerard calls the predetermined sacrificial category. He says, Father brought me under a cloud a boy still. On the day I killed the son of Lord Amphidamus, though I wished it not. Okay, he, that is to say, he, in a childish fit, he killed another child. He didn't mean to, it just kind of got out of hand, and he did. And he was therefore expelled from the community as a marked person, a homicide, a marked person expelled from the community, he had to go live in Phthia with Peleus. Peleus took him in. Peleus takes in all these types, see? Peleus took him in. And he became the squire, essentially, to Achilles. Note what he says here in book 23. My father brought me under a cloud of boy still on the day that I killed the other child, though I wished it not, in childish anger over a game of dice. Now, let's just go through that and think about what the Iliad is all about. Childish anger over a game of die. There is a, this only appeals to us who grew up on, uh, on uh, cowboys and Indians, but the Rus translation of this, which I think actually goes closer to the literal Greek, is a silly quarrel over a game of knucklebone. Now that's, the Greeks don't, didn't fight with their fists the way we grew up our cowboys fighting. That was the manly way was with spears, right? So it doesn't have that same quality in the Greek, but it, it has a little nuance that speaks to us, right? A silly quarrel over a game of knucklebone. You see, he killed under the influence of a paradigm which is now going to take his life. He is the marked one, like Oedipus, who has to go the full circle round and come back in now. Fate, destiny, has been there all along. He is the marked pharmacos. And we just don't know it yet. Now, the first suggestion that Patroclus go put on Achilles' armor began with Nestor. Now, we could say, you see, after it's all over, we could say, this must have been a conspiracy. What was Nestor trying to do? Nestor was just as caught up in it as everybody else. He was just the first one in whose head the idea occurred. And Nestor said, why don't you go put on Achilles' armor? Let's try that. Immediately on hearing that, 
Patroclus is very excited. He begins to run as though nothing will stop him from doing exactly what he's just heard about. And he stops immediately to become a physician to Eurypylus, who has a wound in his thigh. Remember that? He becomes the healer. What is Homer telling us? He is going to be the pharmakos. He is going to be the healer of this situation. He stays there treating the wound and commiserating with Eurypylus until he hears the Trojans crossing over and crashing into... And suddenly, it's as though he awakens out of a dream and goes straight to Achilles. A clear indication, I think an unmistakable indication, that Homer is associating Patroclus to healer Two roles. He uses the personal one to indicate the the motif. He is the healer. He heals Eurypylus by taking that out of his thigh. And now he's going to go heal the culture by being the pharmacos. He's an exile, a homicide, and a victim of circumstances. He's the Homeric version of Billy Budd. The pharmacos is paraded around to absorb the disease. Patroclus absorbs the disease in two ways. First of all, he is the one most intimate with Achilles, the carrier of the disease. And secondly, he puts on the armor of Achilles, which is the symbolic disease. So instead of being paraded around, in the part of town where the infection exists, he absorbs it in this other way. Now, we should not expect to find a St. Francis in the Iliad. It would be too much of an anachronism. However, what is so striking, if you look at the actual text, is that Patroclus comes very close to being that when we first see him. He is the personification of compassion. When he approaches Achilles with this idea of Nestor's, the text says this, Meanwhile, Patroclus approached Achilles, his commander, streaming warm tear, like a shaded mountain spring that makes a rock ledge run with dusty water. Achilles watched him come and felt a pang for him. Then the great prince and runner said, this is Achilles speaking to Patroclus, Patroclus, why all the weeping? Like a small girl child who runs beside her mother and cries and cries to be taken up and catches at her gown and will not let her go, looking up in tears until she has, until she has her wish. That's how you seem, Patroclus. Like a little child. And he says to Achilles, have you no pity? If in your heart you fear some oracle, some word of Zeus told by your gentle mother, then send me out at least, and send me quickly. Give me a company of Myrbidons, and I may be a beacon to the Danaeans, that's the Greeks. Lend me your gear to strap over my shoulders. Trojans, then, may take me for yourself, and break off battle, giving our worn-out men a chance to breathe. 
note what is absent here. What is absent is any hint of hatred or aggression or vengeance or wrath. The only emotion that is present is compassion. He is weeping for his people. And he says, give me your armor. He doesn't say, and therefore I will become a vicious guy and go out there and win the war. He says, if you give me your armor, they'll see me, think it's you, and they'll retreat and our guys will get a break. That's all he's proposing. The poem says, so he petitioned, witless as a child, that what he longed for was his own death. Again, the reference to childlike innocent, the lamb, the pure lamb. The references to child lead us to think that Patroclus is younger than Achilles, but he's not. He's, he is Achilles' counselor. He is older than Achilles and wiser than Achilles. Achilles responds. Poem says, we know immediately what's happened here. Achilles, out of his deep anger, made reply. Utter compassion on the part of Patroclus. And now Achilles, out of his deep anger, made reply. Hard words, dear prince. There is no oracle I know of that I must respect, no word from Zeus reported by my gentle mother. Only this bitterness eats at my heart when one man would deprive and shame his equal. Now, where'd that equal thing come in? The breaking down of cultural distinction. Taking back his prize by abuse of power, the girl whom the Achaeans chose for me, I won by my own spear. A town with walls I stormed and sacked for her. See, I worked for that. Then Agamemnon stole her back out of my hands as though I were some vagabond held cheap. Bristling with self-reference. See that? Nothing in what Patroclus has said has had any reference at all to himself. Everything that Achilles says refers back to himself. Attack the enemy, he's speaking to Patroclus, attack the enemy in force, or they will set the ships ablaze with whirling fire and rob Achaeans of their dear return and slaughter them right here on the beach. Now, carry out the purpose I confide so that you'll win great honor for me and glory among the Danaeans. Let's get this straight, Patroclus, what we're talking about. Then they'll send me back my lovely girl with bright new gifts as well. Wait a minute, Achilles. They already did, and you didn't accept it. He forgot that for a second. This is how unconscious and instinctive this process is. It comes up with rationale to support what it's doing, but the rationale is paper thin. That's not the reason. Those aren't the reasons. It is some deep, scandalous, thonic operation. So he says, once you expel the enemy from the ships, rejoin me here. If Hera's lord, the lord of thunder, grants you the day's honor, covet no further combat far from me with Trojan soldiers. That way you deny me recompense of honor. 
I don't want you to go out there and win this war, Patroclus. You must not, for joy of battle, joy of killing Trojans, carry the fight to Ilium. Why did he say that? Well, if you were right there with your microphone and said, Achilles, why did you say that? He's, you see, Homer does not know of, Homer lived before Freud, as you know. He does not know about unconscious motives. And if you said, Achilles, why did you just do that? He would say, well, that's because that's what I, I just said what I meant. You must not for joy of battle, joy of killing Trojans, carry the fight to Ilion. Patroclus never said anything about carrying the fight to Ilion. Who put that idea in his head? You see that little thing? Well, he goes out. He puts on the armor. Very fateful moment. He puts on the armor and he goes out and he uh, makes his appearance. By the way, the rationale was they'll think I'm Achilles and therefore... all. The they think he's Achilles for exactly 10 seconds. <laughs> and nobody after that has the least confusion about who it is. They know it's Patroclus, you know. I mean, he I don't know. But for 10 seconds, they think it's Achilles. And notice, and the only reason they think it is because Homer wants to say something about what's just gone on. The text says, The Trojan ranks broke, and they caught their breath, imagining that Achilles, the swift fighter, had put aside his wrath for friendship's sake. Now, why do you think Homer wanted to put it that way? To draw attention to the fact that that is precisely what has not happened. As a matter of fact, the opposite has happened. The friendship is being sacrificed to the wrath. Unconsciousness abounds with regard to what's really happening. But still in all, it is happening as predicted. So Patroclus fights, first of all. He's drawn into the battle. You see, you can't, as soon as you put on Achilles' armor, Patroclus is a good, as we know, a good man. He says, look, all I want to, I'll, I only want this congressional appropriation to build a defensive weapon. But once it's in place and it starts to work, who can resist? So he jumps into the fray, you see. And there's Sarpedon, who happens to be a son of Zeus, among other things. He's a marvelous creature. And Patroclus sets on him. He kills Sarpedon. As Sarpedon is dying, he says to his compatriot Glaucus, Fight over my body, Glaucus. Don't let them mutilate my body or leave it here for the for the carrion to eat, please. Which is the major theme for the whole rest of the poem. What are we going to do with dead body? And as he says that, Patroclus is standing over him with his spear in him. And after he utters those words, the text says the following. And Patroclus, with one foot on his chest, drew from his belly, spearhead and spear, the diaphragm came out, so extracted life and blade together. Well, if you think of Patroclus in the armor being cooked, 
until ready. He's getting there. Clearly, Homer has put that reference in there to make us think about the fifth time we read the poem, because it takes a while, to make us recall him pulling out the spearhead from the thigh of Eurypylus, healing, the healing Patroclus, so gently pulling out that spearhead and putting that putting that uh, ointment on it, you see, to make it heal and feel the pain go away. And now, a very few minutes after having donned the armor of Achilles, he's doing this other thing. That, but ritualistically, it is exactly what has to happen. He has to become the carrier of the disease. But for the time being, we get the paradigm which will haunt the whole rest of the poem, and that is fighting over the corpse of the slain warrior. And at this point, we get the reference to the... This is the point that corresponds to uh, the labor pains part of the dynamic. That is to say, at this point, things get close in. And the text says, Zeus unfurled a deadly gloom of night over the combat. A reference, I think, which we have to take to mean that it became more and more instinctual and each began to play a part that they had no that they had no part in formulating and as they fight over the body of sarpedon we get another symbol of the instinctuality involved the poem says an observer could not by now have seen the prince sarpedon since from head to foot he lay enwrapped in weapons, dust, and blood. Men kept crowding round the corpse like flies that swarm and drone in farmyards round the milk pails on spring days when the pails are splashed with milk. Just so they thronged around the corpse. Something as insect-like, as instinctual as flies coming to warm milk. And then we want to know, well, how about Patroclus, he he can't be slain until he becomes until he fully absorbs like the pharmacos all of the disease. Patroclus throws a stone and hits Hector's chariot driver, Cabriones. The poem says the stone hits his head, smashes his head, his his eyes come out of his socket, his brains splatter, and he falls head first out of the chariot and remember remember patroclus pure compassion pity weeping like a child here's what patroclus says after he throws the stone that does that god what a nimble fellow somersaulting if he were out at sea in the fishing grounds this man could feed a crew diving for oysters going overboard even in rough water the way he took that earth dive from his car the trojans have their acrobats i see He's done. He's done. There it is. The dehumanization, the wrath, the arrogance, and the one last thing that happens before he gets killed is that he and Hector fight over the body of Cabriones, Hector's chariot driver. And what you get is the 
absurdity of the scene. Hector caught hold of the dead man's head and held while his antagonist clung to a single foot. Ridiculous. But the whole Patroclus's Aristea, which began when he put the armor on, has now run its course, and he has become Achilles. And we think of Hector being the one who kills him, but actually Hector uh, has a very minor role in in the ritual death of Patroclus. Into the combat dangerous Phoebus came against him, but Patroclus could not see the god enwrapped in cloud as he came near. He stood behind him, stood behind and struck with open hand the man's back and broad shoulders. And the eyes of the fighting man were dizzied by the blow. Then Phoebus sent the captain's helmet rolling under the horse's hooves, making the ridge ring out and dirtying all the horsehair plume with blood and dust. Never in time before had this plumed helmet been befouled with dust, the helmet that kept the hero's brow unmarred, shielding Achilles' head. Patroclus felt his great spear shaft shattered in his hands, long, tough, well-shot and seasoned though it was. His shield and strap fell to the ground. The Lord Apollo, son of Zeus, broke off his cuirass. Shock ran through him, and his good legs failed so that he stood agape. Notice, all of the emphasis is on the armor. Patroclus is going to be killed. This is his ritual death. But the emphasis is on the armor. Patroclus has delivered the armor to where it's supposed to go. That is, at the feet of Hector. He has carried the disease outside of the Greek camp and deposited it at the feet of the central enemy. And that is the role of this surrogate victim. And he dies in doing it, the way a salmon thrashes upstream and deposits that armor at the feet of Hector. He is feared from behind by Euphorbos. And then Hector simply finishes him off. And a, and a battle blazes then over the body of Patroclus. One more quote from René Girard. The scorn, he's talking about animal sacrifice, but it's the same dynamic. The scorn, hostility, and cruelty displayed toward the animal prior to the ritualistic slaughter are replaced upon its death by a show of ritualistic veneration. In bearing away into death the scourge of reciprocal violence, the victim has performed its assigned function. Having been so flagrantly abused, it is only reasonable that the victim should be greatly honored. You remember that's what happened to Oedipus in Oedipus at Kelowna. This is part of the reconstituting event for the Greek cause. And now, in a very strange and interesting metaphor, Menelaus charges out to protect the body of Patroclus from the Trojans who would despoil it. Menelaus had seen Patroclus brought down by the Trojans. Now he came forward in his fiery bronze through the clashing men to stand astride the body. And note this simile. 
protective as a heifer who has dropped her firstborn calf. She stands above it, lowing, never having known birth pangs before. So over dead Patroclus, Menelaus planted his heels with compact shield and spear, thrust out to kill whoever might attack him. The, the simile is one of pure instinctive response. Menelaus comes out to protect that body the way a heifer, having given birth for the first time, stands stupefied and dazed next to the newborn calf, lowing. The instinctuality of the simile is very important not really knowing why. And what is also important is the reference to new birth. The simile says something new has been born. This is not just a death. This is the rebirth of the Greek consensus. The culture is reborn at the sacrificial table on which Patroclus has been slain. The resuscitation, the act of resuscitation has happened. The reciprocal violence has been converted into unanimous violence. If we look at it in terms of the Greek camp. The same thing happens, by the way, in the Passion story. I'll read from chapter 22 of Luke. Herod was delighted to see Jesus. He had heard about him and, ha and had been wa wanting for a long time to set eyes on him. Moreover, he was hoping to see some miracle worked by him. So he questioned him at some length, but without getting any reply. Meanwhile, the chief priest and their scribes were there violently pressing their accusations. Then Herod, together with his guards, treated him with contempt and made fun of him. He put a rich cloak on him and sent, sent him back to Pilate. And this is the relevant line. And though Herod and Pilate had been enemies before, they were reconciled that same day. The pharmacos. You see that? Reciprocal violence, even though latent, replaced now by unanimous violence. Hector puts on Achilles' armor, which Patroclus has conveniently delivered to his feet, as though he's a man in a dream. Instinctive, unconscious, groping, he simply does it. He didn't even mean to. He meant to send the armor back to Troy. But then he finds himself putting it on as though he's in some kind of a trance, as though he's a shaman in a trance, as though he's in the midst of a ritual the way a shaman entranced in a ritual is. And he simply does it. The, the text says, Hector stood there then, apart from all the dolorous war, and changed. I love the way Fitzgerald has, and changed. Yes, he did. And changed his clothes and changed lots. He who had given those arms to be carried back into the proud town to the folk of Troy, now buckled on the bright gear of Achilles. Peleus' son, that gear the gods of heaven granted his father. He, when old, bestowed it on a son who would not wear it into age. And Zeus, who gathers clouds, saw Hector now standing apart in the hero's shield and helm, 
and nodded, musing over him. Ah, poor man, no least presage of death is in your mind. How near it is at last. And then Zeus, the poem says, Zeus bent his great head over his black brows and made the arms fit Hector. Oh, boy. It's, it's so much in that. First of all, he has to take it in a stitch or two. Notice that. has to be taken in in a couple places to fit Hector. We get that. But also in that deeper sense of what's now going to happen to Hector. Now Hector's it. Now Hector is the one. And the next line of the poem says, Then fierce Ares, the hated god of war, entered the man, his bone and sinew, thrilled with power and will to fight. And this is a funeral poem for the rest of the poem. It has to do with dead corpses and how we're going to treat them. It has to do with whether or not the, the corpse is going to, in the face, in the, in the irrefutable face of human mortality, will our dominant emotion be grief or grievance? And the fighting over the corpse takes place over and over and over again. The combatants choose grievance because too much would be let out of their mythology if they were to choose grief. The immortals, who don't have such a stake in human mythology, show more grief. Apollo has takes Sarpedon away to bury him. And the immortal horses of as though Homer wants to give us an example of what should be happening. We have the immortal horses of Achilles responding to the death of Patroclus. The combatants respond to the death of Patroclus by pulling at his arms and legs. The immortal horses respond in the following way. Out of range the horses of Achilles from, from the time they sensed their charioteer downed in the dust at the hands of deadly Hector had been weeping. Automedon, son of Diores, laid often on their backs his flickering whip fled often in a low tone or swore at them, but neither toward the shipways and the beach by Helle's water would they budge nor follow Achaeans into battle. No, stock still as a gravestone. Fixed above the tomb of a dead man or woman, they stood fast, holding the beautiful war car still. Symbolism there. The war car is still. Their heads curved over the ground and warm tears flowed from under eyelids earthward as they mourned their longed-for driver. That's the response. Grief. But the mortals who are combatants choose grievance and tear at the body. And the poet makes a response, I think, makes a response. One of the most amazing juxtapositions in the poem. Aeth kills Hippothous, and when he kills him, his brains, the poems, it's very outrageous the way it's stated. His brains burst all in blood. This is fighting over the body of Patroclus, by the way. His brains burst all in blood out of the wound as far as the spearhead socket. On the spot his life died out in him, and from his hands he let Patroclus's foot fall to the ground. See, he's been tugging at the body. And he pitched forward head first on the body. Far from Larissa's rich farmland, 
nor ever would he repay his parents for their care. One of the most touching lines in the whole poem. We just watch his brains being splattered out and the ridiculousness of him tugging on the foot of dead Patroclus, falling over his own body on the corpse of Patroclus. And then that incredible line, nor ever would he repay his parents for their care. Nothing breaks through that human craziness as powerfully as that line. Simon Weil said, the false gods change suffering into violence, and the true God changes violence into suffering. And the issue for the rest of the poem is which of those two deities will win out. And the issue comes into play at the corpse, at the place of the corpse. Will the corpse be another excuse for the reincarnation of the antagonism and therefore converted into grievance for the next battle? Or will it cause, as it caused in the immortal horses of Achilles, grief and a stopping of the war car and a shedding of tears? a recognition of the common human condition. The last book of the Iliad teeters on the brink between those two until it finally goes one way.